Good morning, everyone. Great to see you here. If you've got your Bibles, keep them open. We start a new series today from the book of Daniel and it's called Living Faith in a Secular City. And I don't know what your memory, understanding, knowledge of Daniel is, but uh, Daniel's kind of an interesting book. It's got some of the most well-known parts of the Old Testament and for many, some of the most confusing parts of the Old Testament. Now tell me, what's the most famous story in the book of Daniel? The lion's den. Uh, it's one of those great stories. If you were here Wednesday night, we had a great um, introduction to the book of Daniel by Jeff Harper, who's an Old Testament lecturer. If you didn't get a chance to come along, well worth going on the website and having a listen. Jeff made the point, um, he thinks every kid's story Bible has the story of Daniel and the lion's den in it. And uh, it's just such a great story and we're going to be coming to that later on. But there's no doubt there's some other material in Daniel um, that has provoked lots of controversy in the Christian church and if you Google images for Daniel 7 you'll get all kinds of interesting uh, pictures that come up. Um, you can see that one reflecting on Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 and the different animals. There's even talking horns there. Um, you get others with uh, diagrams of kind of the end times and what's happening. And because of that, um, Daniel is often only preached on from kind of chapters 1 to 6. And then ministers kind of say, we've probably had enough now and uh, we'll move on to another book. Now we're going to try and cover all of it because it's all scripture, it's all from God, it's all worthy of understanding. And it's a bit like God himself, there's a simplicity about God, um, that we can have a simple faith and trust in God, yet there's a profundity to God uh, in terms of we will never plumb the depths of understanding. And Daniel's a bit like that, there's some incredibly simple stories which are so powerful yet there is a profundity and a mystery to some of the stuff at the end but we're going to come to that as we get through into the month of June but I want us to pray because it's a great book uh, we've called this living faith in a secular city and there's no doubt I think Daniel speaks very powerfully to us as Christians today who live in this city of Sydney which is a secular city and it's a word of encouragement to really encourage us about our faith and shining like lights in a dark world. And so as we start this series, let us pray uh, that God gives us wisdom and understanding. So let me pray for us as we commence. Father, we do thank you for this book of Daniel and I pray that you would give us wisdom to understand. Father, strength to obey and conviction from the Spirit of God so that we might shine like stars in a crooked and depraved generation. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, here's an interesting little picture from Daniel. I want to start by doing a longer than normal introduction. And if you've got your Bibles there, do open up. We're page 873. And when you read the first chapter, and even just the first verses, you see that Daniel is wanting to paint a big picture of what this book is about. And there's a couple of things to kind of take into consideration in terms of understanding the book of Daniel and its message for us. The first is, it's really a story of two cities. And it's a story of the city of Jerusalem and the story of the city of Babylon. Let me read chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And so right front and centre in the first verse, you've got two cities mentioned, Babylon, Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem and Babylon are probably the two great cities in all of Scripture. 
Uh, they are there at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis. Now Genesis 1 to 11 concludes with the story of Babylon. And it's the story of this city which was, if I can say, self-made and had pushed God out. And God destroys the, temp- uh, the tower and scatters the nations and confuses the language. And so Babylon is there at the very beginning. Interestingly, Jerusalem appears just three chapters later. Now, you won't know it as Jerusalem in terms of uh, its name. It was actually called Salem before it became known as Jerusalem. And it's where um, we have a very fascinating story there. And so you've got Babylon and Salem at the very beginning, later called Jerusalem. Now, we're at the halfway mark, and you've got Jerusalem here, and the interesting thing is, Jerusalem has now been sacked. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has come to Jerusalem and besieged it. And so Jerusalem lies in ruins, Babylon is in power. And that's where we meet the people of God as we come to Daniel. And that's the halfway point, you might say, in the book, uh, the Bible. But when you get to the end of the Bible, Babylon and Jerusalem are there again. Now Babylon is now the opposite. It is now judged and destroyed by God. And the Jerusalem there is the new Jerusalem. It's descending from heaven to earth and it's the place where God is dwelling with all humanity and where every tear has been wiped away. And it's important to see this because we need to recognise the story of Daniel is part of a much larger story of God that goes from creation all the way through the new creation. Now cities have reputations. Uh, Which city am I talking about when I talk about the city of love? Paris. It's also known as the city of lights. Uh, Which is the city that never sleeps? New York. Now when you come to Babylon, it also has a reputation. Uh, Babylon in the Bible is the city that stands for human pride and for independence from God. Uh, Its character really is defiance of God. Uh, And in Genesis 11, it's built God out. It's proud and confident in itself with themselves at the centre. And that is what we find and that's the city we meet here in Daniel. And it's worth saying a modern day equivalent of Babylon really is Sydney and so many of the great cities of the world. This is not a city that has great thoughts of God. There'll be more people today in churches, Christian churches, worshipping God then we'll attend rugby league matches this weekend. Now, it's not a regular round of rugby league, so even next weekend when you've got a regular round of rugby league, there'll be more people in Christian churches by far who are in church worshipping God than who are at rugby league matches. Now, when you turn to the paper on Monday morning, will you find great descriptions of what went on in church? You won't, will you? Now, if you went back to 1959, the papers would actually ring up numbers of denominational ministers and give you a brief transcript of the, of the message. One of them was actually John Jones, who comes to our 8 o'clock service, and he said they would ring me every Sunday and get a transcript of his message in brief form, and they'd do it with the Lutheran, the Methodist, and they would publish that on the Monday paper to let people know what had happened in church on the weekend. You know, that doesn't happen today, does it? You kind of look at me blankly like, really, that happened? That really happened. 
you see this city has changed. Uh, you'll get lots about Benji Marshall, what happened at the Anzac Day t- uh, test, etc., etc. You won't get anything about God. And whatever you read about the church typically is negative and cynical. And when something positive is written, and Simon Smart, one of our members, writes on occasion in the Sydney Morning Herald, uh, the barrage of attack on him is something to be seen. Most people will respond very negatively to what Simon puts forward in terms of trying to put a winsome view of the Christian faith. You see, Sydney is a modern-day Babylon. And Jerusalem is the very opposite of Babylon. And the Bible describes it as God's city. Jerusalem is a city that stands for righteousness and holiness. It's the place where God dwells. And in the book of Revelation, the new Jerusalem will descend upon this world with God at the centre of his people. And as I said, it's a place where every tear is wiped away. But Daniel has been called to live in Babylon. And Jerusalem is now in tatters. So that's the first thing. It's a story of two cities. Uh, It's a story of two gods. Let's read verse 2. The Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. In the book of Daniel, there's no doubt that the people of God are in crisis. There's a crisis of faith that is going on. You see, they believed their God ruled. But what had happened was that their city, the city of God, had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And in their minds, their God had been destroyed. And the Babylonian gods had won. Their best and their brightest had been dragged off to Babylon. Their temple lay in ruins. Its holy artefacts had been taken away. And questions were being asked. Did Yahweh, that is the Lord, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, did he not have any power? Did the Lord even care about them? Actually, were the gods of Babylon more strong or stronger? And it's in that context you read these verses. Verse 2, The Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah. What are you saying? God enabled the destruction of his city? The Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. That's the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. You see, this book is written for people who might have a crisis of faith. A crisis that all of us as the people of God most likely will go through at some point in our life. It's the crisis that knowing, of knowing that God is God and yet we live in a world that doesn't look like that. Now have you reflected on that in your own life that you go, hang on, God's meant to be God but my experience in life does not appear that God is sitting on the throne in charge. This just looks like chaos in front of me. It's the crisis of knowing that God is meant to be good and yet you find yourself living in a world that challenges that and your experience of life seems to deny that. As you go through sickness, as you go through loss, as you go through death and experience that around you and you've been brought up to believe God is good yet all that you see in front of you is not good. Where are you God? It's the crisis of believing that God is meant to be powerful. 
but yet the experience in your life and so other, many other things appear to be more powerful. There are more powerful people who seem to be at work and your prayers are not answered. Why is that, God? Aren't you able to overcome the forces that I do battle with? Uh, there are forces and people who are more impressive than God and you feel so weak as a Christian. Have you ever felt that living here in Sydney, that there are so many forces against us? There are so many things that are more impressive than belonging in a Christian church and seeking to serve him faithfully. Why should I keep going on when there's other things that seem so impressive, other things that seem so powerful? Well, this is a story of two gods and it's as true then as it is today. There's a battle that goes on. It's a story of two characters. Now, I say that in a plural kind of sense. You've got a divine drama that takes place that is played out through kings in Babylon and Daniel and his friends who live there. Let me read from verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years and after that they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. Now the kings of that day, just like the, if I can say, the powerful kings, if I can use that in a general sense of today, are powerful and they're impressive. And there's no doubt Nebuchadnezzar would have been a very powerful and very impressive figure. He had riches. He had people who served him. He had an army that he commanded. And that is, if I can say, on one side of the ledger, you've got these powerful kings, impressive and powerful. And against them, in this book, are pitted four young teenage boys. And I say teenage boys because, you see, when Daniel and his friends were deported, they were probably no older than 16. They were the best and the brightest, and they were deported to a foreign country to be indoctrinated in their whole way of life and religion. And Daniel is a book about how these four faithful young men of God live in this foreign country of Babylon and they thrive. And it's written to encourage us as we live in the same situation of living, if I can say, in a secular city where there are forces opposed to us, where there are people who look so impressive but yet so godless that we are tempted to want to emulate and become. And you come to the end of chapter 1, have a look at verse 21. It's a very short sentence, but it's a very powerful one. It says, uh, And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, you mightn't make much of that, but you see, what the writer is saying is this. Um, there are kings who have ruled. They have come and they have gone. But the one left standing is actually Daniel. And that's what this book is going to unfold for you how this young man of faith overcomes because of his trust in God. And all the might of Babylon, which was 
greater than anything in that world of that day, cannot overcome the force of the living God whom Daniel trusts in. And so as we start this journey, I want to just ask the question, how do we live with a living faith in a secular city like Sydney? And what do we learn just from this first chapter? Well, the first thing is this, we need to recognise that God is in control. Uh, The biblical word for God being in control is that he is sovereign. He rules. No one can match his power. No one can resist his power. No one can overcome him or defeat him. He is in control. He rules. And no one else is able to oppose him. Now, I think when people have a kind of... um, I often hear this theology being put forward. I think a lot of people, and a lot of Christians in particular, live with what I call a Star Wars God. Now, do you remember Star Wars? Six episodes. We started episode four back in the 80s, and it kept going on to six, and then we went back to one, and I understand there's a number seven coming out. Now, there was a a world view that was put forward in Star Wars which went like this. Uh, There are two forces. Uh, There is the force, which is good, and there is the dark side, which is evil. And the power balance kind of waxes and wanes. It's like the yin and yang. And so at some points in Star Wars, the force is powerful and it is overcoming and it's in charge. But yet the dark side rises up and it then takes control. And the force is kind of unable to resist the dark side at that level. And it swings backwards and forwards. Now, I think people sometimes think, that life under God is like that, that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus are the forces of good and then there is the dark side. And when good happens, it's because God, the force, is at work. And when bad things happen, it's because the dark side, which is the devil, well, he's triumphed and the devil has won and God has been thwarted. Now, this might be the basis for a fascinating and very enjoyable science fiction movie series, uh, but it's not biblical Christianity. God is sovereign. He is overall. There is no God who can rival him, who can overcome him. Nothing happens in this world without his designing it and willing it to be. You see, the devil has no power over God. The devil cannot thwart God. The devil cannot oppose God. Now, evil is real. And we are to resist it and we are warned to beware of it. And there is a great reality to the forces of darkness. But the Bible is very clear. God is totally in charge and he rules and nothing happens that he doesn't have control over. Both life and death, both sickness and health, both blessing and hardship, all ultimately actually comes from the hand of God. And you see this at the very beginning. You see, what Daniel is saying is, the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. It wasn't that God was weak. It was God was powerful, but he exercised his power on this occasion to actually bring defeat on his own people and his own city. It was all part of his judgment on the darkness that had descended upon the people of Israel. The Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. It wasn't the gods of Babylon that did this. It was actually God. Now, if you think this is a kind of one-off piece of theology in the Bible, it's all through the Bible. Let me read to you a couple of pieces. 
Um, Isaiah chapter 45, page 722 in the Pew Bibles. Isaiah 45, verses 5 to 7, I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. You see, there is no other God that can rival God. I will strengthen you, though you may not, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Now listen to what he says in verse 7. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do actually all these things. You see, God is totally in control of this world we live in. Nothing happens in this world that he does not will or purpose. Now, I know I'm raising some bigger questions um, that you may have bigger issues with. That's okay. We should not be surprised by the fact that God is beyond our understanding. He is God, by the way. And he's totally in charge. And you see, this is what Daniel grasps. He grasps that he is in Babylon because God has purposed it. And so because of that, he is not to be one of two things. I think when you live in a secular city, there are two things that happen to us. The first is this, we can live as Christians in fear. We can be afraid of the forces that are at work in this city and the power that people can exercise over us because there is no doubt, and you see this in Daniel, that there is real human power and it can be exercised for good or evil in any city. And all of us as we live in this world will experience that of living under power that can be both good and evil and you see that at work currently in the New South Wales political scene where corruption is on both sides of the house. There is power in human hands. And we can live in fear because we know as we seek to live for Christ that we can be opposed and knocked and ridiculed and persecuted. And so we withdraw. But the other thing that can happen when you live in a secular city is you can be so impressed by it and you can think, wow, this is incredible what is on offer in this place. And there's an impressiveness about Sydney. It is a marvellous city to live in and you can get caught up in everything that is here and leave God behind. And there's no doubt that was what was part of the plan for Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar in deporting the best and the brightest. He wanted to impress them with what he had to offer so that they would become disciples of Babylon and go and spread that Babylonian mantra and be his people in the world. Once they'd imbibed of the culture. Daniel was neither impressed nor afraid. Because, you see, he believed and saw that God was totally in control and that God had put him there and that God would protect him and that God would be the one who would bring an end to Babylon. Have a look at when you get to chapter 9. Do you want to just flip forward a couple of chapters? It's a prayer we're going to come to and it's interesting because, you see, we find Daniel praying for God to work but this is right at the end of Daniel's life that he does this. Not at the beginning. In the first year of Darius, uh, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures. Interesting. You see, how does he 
get his insight into what's happening, he reads the Bible. I understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. You see, when he's first put there, he's not praying for salvation because he knows from the word of God, it's actually not going to come. God's in control. He's made this happen. When 70 years comes up and he's at the end of his life, he says, actually, God, you made a promise. Come on, time to honour it. He's an old man now, not a teenage boy. But because he grasps that God is sovereign, the scriptures had revealed it. He believed it. He knew all that was taking place was part of God's plan. You see, if you're faithful to God as we live in this secular city, you must know and believe God is sovereign. He's totally in control of all things. And when you're serving at work and under a difficult boss who behaves like he is God, God is in control when sickness strikes. God is in control. When corruption takes place, God is in control. When you are persecuted or not for taking a stand, as a Christian, God is in control. And he may do things and allow things which we may not desire. We may lose friends, family, through sickness and death. But in the middle of it all, we actually have to affirm God is in control. That's the first thing. We need to recognise that God is in control. The second is we need to learn to bend with the wind. I think there's a natural desire in all of us uh, to want to have a happy, safe life. I mean, who doesn't want that? Now, when you live in a secular world that you either can be afraid of or, if I can say, impressed by, one of the ways we think I'm going to remain faithful is we withdraw. And Christians through history have had a preponderance to withdraw and set up what you might call a Christian ghetto. Now, we'll put it in more positive terms. We're kind of creating a nice Christian community. But what we're doing in reality is we're withdrawing from the world we live in because we find it too aggressive, we find it too anti-God, we find it, if I can say, not a place we want to live in. So we set up our own Christian environment. Uh, you see it most powerfully and poignantly with the Amish people um, over in America who've effectively set up alternate cities to live in. Uh, the problem for them is that modern America is sinful. And so the world is evil, so they'll remove themselves from it. And it's built on a godly desire to be a holy and separate people for God. But is that how we're to live for God post the Great Commission in a secular city like Sydney? And Daniel would say no. You see, Daniel, because he believed God was in control and ruled over not just Jerusalem but Babylon, was actually happy to live in Babylon. And not just live there, adapt to the culture and bend to the culture as much as he could. Now, have a look at two key things. Um, have a look at the names that they're given. Verse 7, the chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Now, it's interesting. These names that they're given are not just kind of like Australians. You know how, if I can say, for the Anglo-Saxon Aussies here, um, and if I can say, often I've seen this experience happen when we've had our Asian brothers come and join us here in Australia, or Asian sisters. And we've found their names too difficult and say, so we'll give them an Aussie name, typically with one syllable. Because we can't pronounce their name. Now, I've seen it here happen just recently with our wonderful African brother from Burundi. Everyone calls him Burundi Dave because we find David Enduamana too hard to pronounce. 
And I've had to learn it because I think this is his name, David Enduamana. It's not Burundi Dave. <laughs> Though you all know him like that. There's Hanbury Dave and Burundi Dave. And they're both very talented musicians. It's not like that. You see, what's happening here is um, the names that Daniel had and his friends profoundly marked out their faith in God. Daniel meant God has judged. Hananiah meant the Lord has been gracious. Mishael meant who and what is like the Lord. Azariah meant the Lord has helped. You see, their names embody their faith. And the change and the new names were given were religious, profoundly so. The new names were names of pagan gods. And so Daniel, who was God as judged, he's called, may a goddess protect the king. That's fascinating, isn't it? Because you see, Daniel was happy to accept the name they gave him. He probably didn't like it at one level, but he was happy to bend with the wind. Education. You read in verse 4, he was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years and after that they were to enter the king's service. Now, it wasn't like going to university today where you might learn maths or science or law or whatever. Um, Babylon, Babylon had been, if I can say, um, settled with Chaldean people. And if you know your ancient history, um, the Chaldeans were very religious and they practiced what we might call the dark arts. And the Chaldean education, which is what they were being instructed in, it wasn't just maths and science. You see, they were astrologers, they were magicians, they were enchanters. And so along with reading, writing and arithmetic, as we used to call it, they also learnt black magic and the occult. Now, that doesn't seem a very godly practice, does it? And if we were to have that taught at Manly Village Public School, I'm sure we'd be up in arms. But yet Daniel accepted it. Daniel was not afraid of it, I think more to the point. He knew that God was in charge, and so he was prepared to learn their black magic and to learn their occult. Now, we know he didn't practice it, because when you see the stories that will unfold, Daniel is deeply a man of prayer who gets his wisdom and power from God. But yet he went into that world and understood the culture of that world and the learning of that world, including the dark religion of that world. And you see, if we are to thrive and survive in serving God in the Gospel in Sydney, we cannot retreat. We are not called to build a Christian ghetto here. I just want to repeat that. We are not called to build a Christian ghetto here. We, like Daniel, are called to go into this secular city. And part of that will mean we will need to adapt to its culture and understand its culture. We actually must be part of this city if we are to shine in darkness. But there's a third thing. We must take a stand. Christians by nature are to be different. We are to be salt and light in a dark world. And I'm going to finish just with this brief word. Have a look at verse 8 of chapter 1. Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to 
defile himself this way. You see, Daniel's happy to go to their university. He's happy to learn about their religion. He's happy to be called by their names. But he wouldn't eat or drink the royal food. Now, for those who are worried because all he ate was vegetables, that this is something that you need to do, um, it's not ungodly to eat meat. Uh, Wednesday night we had a South African man who I know loves his meat and was a bit concerned by this. Um, vegetarianism is no more godly than eating meat. Uh, it's not something to read to your children to encourage them to them eat their vegetables. It's probably not a good use of the Bible at that point. Okay. What was the issue? Um, I read one commentary. He had nine different options of what people have tried to think was the reason behind this. Uh, I don't think any of them actually cut any slack there. Um, I think what was going on was this. He was taking a stand because in his mind the eating of the royal food would defile himself. He did not want to partake of the table of the rich king. He wanted to separate himself from it. You've heard the saying, there's no such thing as a free lunch. I guess that's what ICAC has been investigating recently. There is no such thing as a free lunch, is there? And what Daniel was saying was actually, I'm not going to partake of the riches of this king and eat from his table. Just give me water and vegetables. I'll be fine because God's in control. He'll look after me. It's not that the food in itself was anything worse because, you see, he was still eating their food. But he was taking a stand against the king because he didn't want to defile himself and be corrupted. His actions revealed that his trust was in the ways of God. Though he was to live in Babylon, Babylon wasn't going to live in him. And it wouldn't deflect his confidence in God to provide or to protect. Now the details for us are different. Uh, we don't live in Babylon back then in the 6th century BC. The food laws don't apply. You don't have to be a vegetarian, but the principle is the same. We must not be defiled by this city and we must take a stand. Yes, we need to understand the culture. Yes, we need to live in this world and fit in as much as possible, but we will take a stand and the evidence of your faith in God will be seen in your obedience or disobedience to God. We will practice sexual purity. It's what God calls us to in a world that is sex crazy. Uh, we will honour marriage and not live together, contrary to the common practice. We will not be greedy, but rather be marked by generosity towards God and gospel ministry and people in need and simplicity of lifestyle rather than opulence. We will live simple lives marked by the service of others, not self-advancement and human pride. You see, we're not going to live in fear in this world, but we're also not going to live impressed by this world. We're going to live in a way that points to the living God and shines like light in the darkness. Friends, how do you live in this secular world? Well, you need to live in it. And you need to understand it. But you do it knowing that God is totally in control. And you seek to live in a way that honours him as you fit in. And it will mean you will take a stand at different points as you seek to be his person, bringing truth and grace 
and love to bear as we together preach the gospel. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for this book of Daniel that we will journey through. And you call us to live here in Sydney with a living faith. Father, help us to understand this city and to love this city, but yet not to be dazzled by it. Not to be so impressed by it that we become just like it. But not to be fearful of it so that we do not stand for you. Rather, give us confidence in you that you are totally in charge and help us to shine like lights in a crooked and depraved generation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.